The second Bible reading is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning at verse 2. We always thank God for all of you mentioning you in our prayers. We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labour prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. In spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Sam. Uh, my name's Ollie. I'm one of the ministers of our church. It'd be great if you could keep your Bible open. Uh, we'll be working through, particularly we'll think about verses 9 and 10 from that passage. Uh, but happy Easter. It's great to be with you. And uh, thanks for the, letting us know about those calories, John. That means that at 45 calories per Easter egg, uh, with the daily average intake suggested for men being 2,500, I can have 56 Easter eggs today and still be healthy because I'm still under the, um, the daily recommended intake. So um, that is good to know. But as we begin, I'm going to pray. So please uh, pray with me. Gracious Father, we do thank you for today, Easter Sunday. And we thank you that on this day, nearly 2,000 years ago, you brought about the greatest rescue that the world has ever seen. And we thank you that now uh, we can gather and we can think about that and we can consider your word. Uh, would you be at work in our hearts as we do? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's a right way and there's a wrong way to receive rescue. Uh, the right way is with joy and gratitude. I can remember a time earlier this year, it was a hot day, uh, high 30s, maybe low 40s, clear sky, the sun beating down and the thing about me is that I don't cope with heat well and I just picked up Levi from childcare and I got him buckled into the car seat and the thing about Levi is that he does not cope with heat well either and so we were both hot and cranky and sweaty and we're both desperately longing to get the air conditioner on in the car and so I hopped into the car, I put the car keys in I turned the car keys with the imagination, the, the wonder, the desire for the air-conditioned bliss. And as I turned the keys, do you know what happened? Nothing. Nothing. No idyllic air conditioner. No cool relief from the oppressive heat. Just the horrible realization that the car battery was dead. And so Levi and I turned to each other and we shared a look that said, oh no, 
well, Levi was only one and a half, so I'm not sure that's what he was thinking, but that was what I was thinking as sweat poured down my head. We were stuck, stuck in the boiling heat of summer with no relief. And so I put out the rescue call. I uh, sent that SOS to the RACV guy. And when he turned up, he would have seen a, ma- a man half crazed with heat stroke, uh, T-shirt completely drenched in sweat, kind of lumbering towards him as he came. And it's a wonder he didn't flee instantly at the sight of it. But I was so eager to receive rescue. But people aren't always so eager to receive rescue. I remember a time in my early 20s, I was away with some friends and it was hot again, so we went for a swim. But unfortunately, one of the guys with us didn't know how to swim. But being uh, foolish young men, we hounded and hounded him until he eventually gave in, jumped in and swam with us. And things were going okay for a while. He was managing to keep his head above water. But then he got tired and he started to sink. And now, of course, we all went to help him. We didn't want to see our friend drown, of course. But you know what happened when I got to him? In his panic, he did what's actually quite common for people who are drowning. He grabbed me and pushed me under the water in an attempt to keep his own head above water. And so we both ended up going under. And I'm not exaggerating at all to say that I legitimately thought I was going to die. I thought he was going to die as well. Now, in God's kindness, one of my friends managed to pull him off me and we managed to swim him into the shore. But there's a right way and a wrong way to receive rescue. The right way to receive rescue there would have been for him to allow me to swim up, to put him on my chest and to swim us both back into shore. But instead, he responded in the wrong way. He panicked and he pushed me under. And so both of us nearly ended up drowning. There's a right way. And there's a wrong way to receive rescue. And the reason we're thinking about this is because at its heart, the story of Easter is a story of rescue. It's a story of God's rescue plan for the world. But just like with my friend, there's a right way and there's a wrong way to receive that rescue. But as important as it is to receive rescue well when you're drowning... Receiving this rescue well is even more important because this isn't just a matter of physical life and death. This is a matter of spiritual life and death. See, if we don't receive this rescue well, then our eternal fate is at stake. And so then, how do we receive rescue rightly? Well, in our passage, 1 Thessalonians 1, uh, Paul is writing to the church in Thessalonica, and it's a church that he has played a huge part in establishing. Uh, He was the pioneer missionary to them, and they'd experienced particularly harsh uh, oppression and persecution for their faith. And so at the start of his letter, he commends them, and he thanks God for them. And in particular, he thanks God because the way they've received rescue is evident to everyone. And so then in verses 9 and 10, the verses we'll think about, he shows us three things about how we're to receive rescue. We turn, we serve, and we wait. And so firstly, we turn. Have a look at verse 9. They, those who live nearby, tell how you turn to God from idols. See, there's a very definitive and deliberate break from idols. 
Now, in those times, idols were everywhere. They, they quite literally had gods for everything. Uh, the, these are a few of the gods they had. There was Pan, who was the god of rustic music. Not the god of normal music, the god of rustic music. Uh, there was Chiamites, who was the demigod of beans. Of all the things you could choose to make a god of, they chose beans. And then probably worst of all, there was Aristeus, who was the god of cheese. Now, uh, cheese is, the, is revolting. I despise cheese, yet they love it so much that they made a god for cheese. They lived in this culture where there were gods for everything. There were idols, statues for anything you could imagine. But to receive rescue rightly, they had to turn from those idols to worship God instead. But we might hear that and think, well, that's good for them, but we don't have idols like that in our society. We don't have those kind of primitive backwards gods like they did, so yeah, we, well, what are we meant to turn from? But I think the reality is that we actually do have idols like that. Now, we might not call them gods or idols like they did, we might not call it the god of cheese, but we still have the idols of our hearts, things that we give more thought to than God things that we give more attention to than God, things that we give more money to than God. See, because idolatry is when we put anything above God, and we are experts at that. Uh, the famous theologian John Calvin uh, said this, he said, the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. In the same way that you put steel into a, into a factory and you get a car out the other end, if you put almost anything into the human heart, the idol factory, you get an idol at the other end. Money, status, relationships, work, all good things. But when you put them into the idol factory that is the human heart, more often than not, idols come out. And I'm sure if we think about it, if you think about it, I'm sure we can all identify the idols of our hearts, the things that are bound up with the deepest emotions and instincts of our hearts, the things that are tied to the deepest cravings and longings of our hearts. I wonder, what is it for you that if you were to lose it, life would feel like it's not worth living? As I was thinking about this, I was, reflected, I was reminded of The Last Dance. I don't know if you watched that, the documentary on Michael, uh, Michael Jordan. That was great. Now, I normally wait till a whole show comes out before I watch it so I can kind of binge watch it in one bulk. But uh, this documentary was so good, I was watching each episode as it came and then I'd have to wait a week until the next one came out. But as I was watching it, I was struck by the fact that this was a man who worshipped success. Michael Jordan was a man who would sacrifice anything to succeed on the basketball court. He's willing to sacrifice time with his family, relationships with his teammates, even his own long-term health by playing through injuries. This was a man who would sacrifice anything to succeed. And I wonder, what's the idol of your heart? What is the thing that you would sacrifice anything to receive? What is the thing that you long for the most above anything else? Well, whatever it is, receiving rescue rightly means turning from those idols and worshipping God instead. And as we do, we serve Him. 
because that's what we see in the rest of the verse that says this, rest of verse 9. They tell how you turn, from, turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And now that word there for serve is duello, and it quite literally means to serve as a slave. It indicates complete and utter service. It's deliberately strong language that Paul's using here, that we are like slaves to God. We're His to do with as He pleases. Now, we might hear that language of slaves and serving and be quite turned off. We might think, well, I don't want to serve anyone. I want to be the master of my own destiny. But the reality is that we all serve something. We all have something that is commanding and driving our lives. Now, see, we like to think of the kind of idols in our lives as these neutral things, these things that we kind of consume, we enjoy, and then we put to the side. But that's not the way things work. Our idols are our taskmasters. I mean, think about Michael Jordan. His idol was his success. And so it made great demands of him. Demands that he sacrifice his free time to train. Demands that he uh, sacrifice time he could spend with his family. Demands that he uh, sacrifice the positive relationships with teammates to drive them on harder. See, his idol made demands of him. He was serving it. And if our career is our master, then it will make similar demands of us too. If the approval of others is our master, our idol, then it will demand that we be willing to give up our, our belief system to make sure that others think highly of us. If our health is our master, then it will demand that we sacrifice the foods we eat and the way we treat our bodies. See, whatever our idols are, they make demands of us. We serve them because we're their slaves. And so, in reality, it's not a matter of whether we serve or not, the question is who we serve, or rather what we serve. And receiving rescue rightly means turning to God and serving God. But the question is, well, why is God worth serving? Well, it's because of who God is. Did you see that? Have a look again at verse 9. It says, to serve the living and true God. So let's think about those two words for a minute. What does it mean that God is living and God is true? Well, firstly, God is living, which is so different to idols. See, the idol of career or success or approval of others, they're not actual beings, they're not actual entities, they're an idea, they're something we want to do, but they're not alive, they're dead. But it's not so with God. God is alive. But even more than that, the Greek word here carries the idea of being active, God is living, alive, and active in His world. And that's why on the day of Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, 3,000 people were converted in one day. God is living and active in His world. And that's why Christianity has continued to grow so much across the years. In the last 100 years, the number of Christians in the world has gone from 600 million to 2.2 billion God is living and active in His world. It's also why Christianity continues to grow in places we wouldn't expect it to grow. In China, there's incredible persecution for being a Christian. So we might expect that there would be no growth there. But what do we see? In China, the number of Christians has grown by 10% 
every single year since 1979. For more than 40 years, it has grown by 10% each year. And so now there are around 90 to 115 million Christians in China, which is crazy when you think, that, uh, think about it. The population of all of Australia is only 25 million people, and there are 90 to 115 million Christians in China. God is living and active in His world. And don't you want to serve the God who is living and active? You don't want to serve something that's dead. And then the other thing we see is that God is also true. Now, this uh, Greek word uh, kind of conveys the sense of genuine and real. So it's not true in the sense of true and false, like you might get on a test, but rather genuine compared to counterfeit. And now we all know about counterfeit money. Uh, Apparently in the US, there are $70 million worth of fake money. Uh, It's estimated that one in every 10,000 banknotes is actually a fake. They're actually worthless. And the reality is that that is what idols are like. They look good on the surface. They seem like they're valuable. But in reality, they're worthless. They're fakes. They can't give us what they promise. And interestingly, uh, Michael Jordan has spoken quite uh, frequently since his retirement about the, the sense of, of uh, lack of satisfaction, the emptiness that he has now that he's finished playing. He's one of the most successful basketballers ever, perhaps the number one for greatest ever. And yet, that idol of success hasn't given him the satisfaction that he longed for. See, this is what idols are like. They might seem good for a time. They might seem valuable for a time. But in reality, they're fakes. But it's not so with God. He isn't a counterfeit. He's the real deal. He is able to deliver what He promises, which means that turning to God and serving God is the right response because it's something that's actually good for me. It's turning from something that's not good for me to serving the one who's the very best for me. And that comes out perhaps most clearly in our passage with our final point, as we serve God, we wait. See, that's what receiving rescue rightly involves. Have a look at verse 10. And to wait for His Son from heaven. And now that word for wait, anamenu, uh, this is the only place it appears in the New Testament, so it's quite a unique word here, but it conveys the sense of waiting with patience and trust, the kind of expectant waiting. See, we wait with patience and trust for God's Son to return because we know that God is living and true. And this concept of Jesus coming again is a really important idea in the Bible. It actually appears on average once every 13 verses in the Bible. That's how common this idea of Jesus returning is. It's a foundational thing to Christianity. And to receive rescue rightly means to wait with patience for that return, serving as we do. But you might be thinking, well, so what? Like, what does this have to do with me? Why, Why should I wait for this son to return? Well, it's because Jesus is the only one who can offer the rescue that we need. Just like me waiting for the RACV guy to come, I couldn't fix the car myself. I needed to wait for him. And in the same way, Jesus is our rescuer. We see that in the rest of verse 10. Have a look again at verse 10. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. 
Do you see that? Jesus rescues us from what? The coming wrath. God's anger expressed against sinners. See, we need rescue because God is the living and true God and we haven't always treated him like that. Now, we don't, are we in our culture, we don't like this idea that God could be angry, uh, but if we stop and think about it, that actually makes sense, that it's actually quite reasonable that he might be. Uh, let me illustrate. Uh, some of you might, might know already, uh, I love Lego. Lego is something I uh, enjoy, have always enjoyed playing with. I'm looking forward to Levi getting older and us being able to play with Lego together, but imagine if I got all of my Lego and I built a wonderful Lego world, towering Lego cities, soaring Lego mountains, heart-moving Lego sunsets, and I gave it all to little Lego people. But imagine if instead of thanking me for that, they looked up at me and they shook their fists, well, they can't form fists, but their little kind of U hands, and they shook their little U hand at me and they said, go away. If they did that, how should I respond? If they did that to you, how would you respond? Well, I think I'd smash them. I think I'd pulverize them. I would obliterate those bad-mannered so-and-sos. I mean, I gave them all that they have. How dare they not thank me for that? But in a sense, that's what we've done to God. But this isn't just a hypothetical. God really has given us everything we have He's given us the food we eat and the houses we live in. He's given us the friendships we have and the jobs we work at. He's given us the clothes we uh, wear and even the air that we breathe. God has quite literally given us everything we have. And yet what do we do? Oh, we so quickly chase after idols. We so quickly go looking elsewhere for satisfaction. See, it's a terribly offensive thing that we've done to God. We've shaken our fists at God, either knowingly or unknowingly. And so God is understandably angry at that, not in a petty or vindictive way, not in a temper tantrum way that a toddler might throw, but with a righteous and holy wrath against the wickedness of rejecting Him. And that is what we need rescue from. But how do we get that rescue? Well, it's because of today. It's because of Easter, when Jesus was raised from the dead. See, that's what's so great about Easter. Lots of good things about Easter. Chocolate is a good thing. Time with family is a good thing. Public holidays, not just one, but two, that's a good thing. But above all those other good things, the best thing about Easter is that Jesus resurrected from the dead and that that rescues us. See, on Good Friday, he died the death we deserve to die. As God's wrath and anger against our rejection of him was poured out on Jesus instead. But then he didn't stay dead, he rose again, showing that death has been defeated. See, this is the heart of the rescue that Jesus offers. It is because of the resurrection that we can be rescued. And so because of that, what do we do? Well, we wait. We wait for the return of the one who has rescued us by his resurrection. We wait for him to come again, not as a humble servant this time, but as a triumphant king. See, that's what receiving rescue rightly involves. It means we turn from idols, from false gods, to serve the true and the living God, while we wait for the return of Jesus, our great 
rescuer. That is how we receive rescue rightly. And so at the start, I shared about my friend who almost drowned. And in one sense, that is what we are like. We're drowning in our own sin and guilt and shame with no way to save ourselves. We're floundering about, arms flailing, mouth gaping, lungs aching. And yet into that mess comes Jesus. And he dies for us and he rose again for us, defeating death for us. See, if you were drowning in the ocean, you wouldn't turn away the one person that can save you. And how much more, though, this rescue matters. See, responding here wrongly won't just cost you your life. It will cost you your soul to eternal life. See, Jesus is reaching out to you, wanting to pull you to safety. Will you receive that rescue rightly? And for those of us who have already received it, then isn't today such a joyful day? Uh, The day where we remember and we celebrate the fact that Jesus has rescued us. It sustains us in both the good times and the bad times. And certainly uh, this rescue was what kept a lady called Bronwyn Chin going. Uh, Bronwyn was a a loving wife, a mother of four wonderful kids. She was a part-time GP. But in 2009, at just 45 years of age, she was diagnosed with terminal pancreatic cancer. Imagine that. Imagine the devastation of knowing that you're going to die. Never able to grow old with her husband. Never able to see her kids grow old. I mean, it's heartbreaking. But Bronwyn was a Christian and she knew of this wonderful resurrection and the rescue that that brought. And so it actually allowed her and enabled her to face death with joy even in the face of death and cancer. And in fact, uh, this is what she said about it. Uh, She wrote about it. She says this, I'm so thankful to God for the resurrection of Jesus, which means I will have victory over death and don't need to fear pain or the dying process. The plans of the Lord are perfect, even if I don't know the reasons for everything. All I know is that soon I will be with the Lord forever because Jesus alone has saved me through his death and resurrection. I mean, isn't that wonderful? Such joy in the face of pending death. But how can she feel like that? Well, only because of the rescue that's on offer in Jesus. Because of Jesus' resurrection. And actually, in God's wonderfully beautiful timing, uh, do you know what happened with Bronwyn? She died on Easter Sunday, 2013. I mean, how beautiful that because of the events of that first Easter Sunday that on another Easter Sunday, nearly 2,000 years later, she might enter into eternal life. Imagine the joy when she shut her eyes here on earth and opened her eyes in heaven, looking and seeing the face of her loving rescuer. And that joy and that confidence that she had is the same joy and confidence that we can have See, whatever we're going through, whether it's cancer like she did or whether it's something else, her joy is our joy. Her assurance is our assurance because we both have the same rescuer. See, Jesus is reaching out his blood-stained hand to you, offering to rescue you from the coming wrath. Have you received it rightly? I'm going to pray. Please uh, pray with me. 
Heavenly Father, we do thank you for Easter. We thank you particularly for Easter Sunday when we can celebrate the resurrection. Thank you that in it, Jesus has defeated sin and death. And we thank you that because of it, uh, we have rescue, rescue from your righteous anger against our sin and our rejection of you. And we do thank you for that. Please help us to cling tightly to Jesus, to receive the rescue well, and to rest securely in it, knowing that our rescue, uh, our rescue is assured. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.